Hi, welcome to Deep Americana. I am your host for season four. My name is Wes Unruh. And season four is Unrelated Thoughts on Being an Unruly Adoptee. This episode, I guess, if it has a title, will be The Magic Valley. I was born on April 15th, 1974 in Twin Falls, uh, which is in the Magic Valley in Idaho, uh, at the Magic Valley Regional Medical Center on the edge of the Snake River Canyon, uh, where the Prine Bridge overlooks that expanse. Uh, So the first 14 or so years of my life were spent in the Magic Valley, sort of bouncing between Twin Falls and Jerome, where my best friend lived, living in South Central Idaho. My earliest, my earliest memories are of this area, um, all my understandings of animals and nature and wildlife is kind of rooted in this uh, Pacific Northwest area in the United States. Now, when I vacationed, it was often in the nature, the surrounding expanse of Idaho, um, uh, although that you know, it went elsewhere as well, but um, mostly it was camping, backpacking uh, as I got older in um, Idaho mountains and woods. So at the tree line, high uh, altitude lakes, that sort of thing. My earliest memories, of course, are blurred, but what I've pieced together, the stories I've been able to piece together through sort of research, memory, and conversation are jarring. Um, if you listen to my last episode, which was episode three, uh, where I talked about the Ten Commandments, you'll know as I deal with emotional uh, content or younger, earlier memories, I sometimes find myself having to fight through. Um, reading a script is, I'm not a polished voice actor. Uh, I prefer to be... <laughs> Um, their after stuff is recorded rather than in front of the microphone sometimes. But for this project, I feel it's really important that my voice be part of it, if it's going to be any of it, in getting my story out in a way that others can access. So I realize my writing isn't the most accessible. I hope that maybe as I talk my way through what I've written as a script, There'll be more play, if you will. So I have the sense that if only I could recall something that I've forgotten, my world would be changed for the better. That I would better understood, be understand, if you will, who I was supposed to have become. And that my failure to remember is a kind of moral failing or mental defect. Um, I wonder in some part if this isn't an internalization of the storyline of the 1984 film Dune, where Paul Atreides is tested to see if he's human enough to withstand pain. Like, pain and suffering must be understood to be something in the mind, and to fail that is to fail some test, right? Uh, is mastery over the monkey body, if you will. Hmm. But, you know, it seems like an early lesson to try to incorporate into my psyche is so young. <sighs> Yet, like most 
of us, I assume, my mind will not provide a coherent memory of my earliest days. And as try as I might, I can't get my subconscious or shadow self or anima, animus. I can't get my union uh, archetypes to cooperate and always drag memories up at, at the point where I'd like to articulate them. I get flashes, uh, discontinuous frames of punishments, kind of. What does come through in waves are instances anchored in the memory of a place. Uh, I remember that apartment as a starting point. So and I've been there again. I want to say it's on Maurice Street. I'll get back to this in detail, but I remember the apartment where I had been brought when I was an infant and where I grew up for the first four years or so, four and a half years of my life. Um, as a family unit, it was a, uh, a four apartments in, set in such a way into a hill that two of the apartments were downstairs, but it had backwards looking views onto a lawn and uh, two of the apartments were upstairs and had carports right at the point of entry. So we lived, I believe, in the one of the bottom, probably the bottom north uh, apartment uh, unit. Myself, two other pets, adoptive father, adoptive mother. From there we moved once I was four and a half to a house that my adoptive parents had begun to build south of town near the Twin Falls Airport. Ultimately, they put up a road sign um, that they purchased from a mail order catalog that called the, the like road, I guess it was almost a half mile long road that we had in front of our built, uh, property. They named it Aviator Lane themselves, and now that's what it says on Google Maps. So I always found it interesting that that is how arbitrary it got to as far as <laughs> our road can become named. Um, anyway, not that that isn't a reflection on my own naming. <clears throat> so several miles away at Grace Baptist Church, that was the school I attended uh, while living in that town, um, they raised me inside a um, a Northern, Bap Northern Baptist Church on Tyler Street called Tyler Street Baptist Church in Twin Falls. My early education was at the private Christian school associated with the church my family did not attend as parishioners. So <clears throat> that was the school I attended while I lived in that town. And my first memories of the school, because that's really how my earliest narrative memories really started to coalesce, was uh, the front parking lot, the empty field, a hallway of classrooms. Uh, when I think back on those walls, the hallways, the bathrooms, uh, I find myself wondering how much of the abuse I remember was equally experienced and how much was directed only at me, um, the principal's office. So this is the kind of school where um, <clears throat> corporal punishment or what you would call uh, bodily or physical punishment was allowed. So, you know, there's bullying that I went through, and the, but the assaults were both, you know, authorized and not authorized, if you will. They were sort of pure policing with physical brutality. And then um, from the top, there was uh, the male patriarch who was the principal of the school who was also authorized to beat children by the parents themselves. So, uh, yeah, sorry. 
So this was Twin Falls, Idaho in the 80s. The bullying, the assaults, none of those moments ever erupted beyond the walls of the school that I remember. Um, I was never given medical treatment for the attack that I remember in ninth grade in the locker room that led to the scar on my torso under my under my right arm, um, which led to my inability to play a cornet in the band for weeks, and ultimately I just stopped playing the instrument entirely. Um, I think I still have a torn rotator cuff probably in my right shoulder from when I was attacked in ninth, ninth grade at Twin Falls Christian Academy there in Magic Valley. <clears throat> But, you know, time and again, while I attended that school, I was overlooked my pain, left to fend for myself. I remember uh, fainting and passing out during a basketball game I was playing in and being diagnosed thereafter with chicken pox and realizing I'd been running a fever and nobody noticed. Uh, and then I had chicken pox pretty dramatically at the age of 13, um, bad enough that I still have you know, viewable, visible scars from that as well. But, you know, that was just life as a kid in Idaho, I guess. Um, Perhaps I masked the pain, compartmentalized. I certainly watched shows like Grizzly Adams and The A-Team and, you know, The uh, (laughs) Equalizer, the the modes of masculinity that that were performed for me, um, in media, Rambo, First Blood, uh, First Blood Part Two, right? <clears throat> so I learned to mask the pain, compartmentalized, and hid myself away in spaces that I could use to avoid confrontation or overload or emotional engagement. Um, looking back on it, I realized and recognized the symptoms of what you could understand probably is complex PTSD. I still think that identity trauma might be different or more compounded than PTSD specifically when it relates to adoptees or certainly adoptees who've gone through similar experiences as mine, but I know I mapped my youth onto the environment I knew, media stories that I got, and the different worlds that hid me away were those I cultivated in my own mind, you know, by reading fiction. Roger Zelazny, um, like the Nine Princes and Amber series, um, uh, Piers Anthony, uh, Philip K. Dick, by playing video games, role-playing games, reading ways that role-playing games could be used to um, map other narratives. So I remember turning the novel It into a role-playing game with my own, with my own dice system in, uh, when I was 12, 11 or 12. Um, and playing with the kids, and we were doing it that way because that way we didn't get caught playing D&D, which was not allowed by the Baptist um, regime under which we found ourselves as children. So, you know, creating landscapes and populating them with my creations and my friends, um, both on paper and in physical ways in the dirt and sand on blocks with Legos, figures, whatever else I and they might have had at hand. Um, that grew out to playing elaborate board games with others. Uh, so attending school, I was, it was a drudgery of daily life where the line between church sanctum and foyer 
way. In school classrooms, gym, and playground it was non-existent. They were all it was all the same environment. The two years I was homeschooled, which was during my fourth and fifth grade, there were a brief reprieve from the building that I still dream about from time to time. Um, I didn't visit the last time I was in Twin Falls, Idaho, uh, but were I to visit this building now, I've looked at it on Google Maps, right? Um, likely the vast space my young mind imprinted on it does not exist. The classes were small, I'm sure. My cohort shifted sort of <laughs> one grade at a time up the hallway. It was... Um, a dozen of us or so in each grade, I think a class of eight, perhaps nine of us in ninth grade. I don't even remember everyone's name that I went to school with. I remember a few, but I'm not going to relay them. Uh, I mean, the bathrooms would seem shallow, I'm sure, to my, myself. If I went there now and unthreatening and they'd lack the deep shadows and echoes that... My presence as a child in kindergarten, entering the bathroom to find older boys busy with each other with the urinals, sort of overlays, right? My adult perceptions overlay both my assumptions about what I must have experienced and my actual memories, which I find to map moments against each other um, rather linearly as I would have experienced them. So in the moment then as a child, I found the school a rigid and loveless space. I really recall that clearly. Uh, it was driven by a disciplinarian ethos that arose from Calvinist biblical tradition. My understanding now that this was uh, a doctrine didn't mean much to me, I guess, as a kid. I don't know, even know if it would, uh, if I did understand that it all came from Calvin and then previously from Constantine and then sort of mapped all of the uh, progress of Christian, you know morality that had led to me being adopted in Twin Falls, Idaho as a child in 1974. If I had understood where all of this doctrine and ideology had come from, I don't think it would have mattered to me then. I just didn't like it. Like, I didn't like the rules. I didn't like the aggressiveness. I didn't like the physical abuse. I didn't like the bullying. I didn't like the fact that I saw people of other color being uh, mistreated and abused and then made fun of and then basically eliminated from my environment in kindergarten uh, at the school, something that sort of like always lingered. It was, a, it was my understanding of white Christianism as a supremacy doctrine was suffused through the entire understanding of the space culturally that I was in. And when I did encounter those of other races in that space, it was often through a saviorism frame. As a, it took a long time to overcome that. Like living in uh, Kansas, uh, Wichita started that process. Um, Understanding myself is not white for most of my life, up until about a year and a half ago, uh, complicated that, but also made me constantly query the other, like constantly check myself in relation to those around me um, and ask myself, you know, what is their lived experience in this moment and 
how does that impact me and them? Uh, so that said, I guess looking back on that magic valley I grew up in, while there, as a child even, I engaged in long debates about what the unpardonable sin might be, um, right? And uh, what the Leviathan was that lived in the ocean, things that showed up in the Bible that they said was real. I read science books in my Baptist school that explained how Satan sought to deceive scientists with fossils so that men would stop having faith in God. I mean, that was my science class. That was the science textbook as a child. So uh, I was told by my adoptive father that not praying before meals is what causes stomach cancer. Um, I learned jokes about global warming and hairspray and certainly used my share of Aquanet um, when I lived in Twin Falls, Idaho, right? I repeated, uh, not, not for my hair, but as a flamethrower, um, obviously. Um, culturally, there was no interest in preserving the earth, as I was taught the world was corrupt by educators who firmly believed the earth will eventually be intentionally destroyed by God. So these beliefs had long ago infected the extended family members amongst whom I was raised, like long before I ever was pulled into that family through their legal proceedings. So um, as creationism uh, grew into a cultural response to public education, I was firmly center stage as being educated in a creationism frame in private education. Um, by a community that included, you know, quiverful people, uh, included evangelicals, it included missionary workers um, who did not see themselves as, you know, tools of colonialist ideological mean plexes or um, constructs but that I now, looking back on it, see them all enmeshed in this sort of ideological engine, right? It's always pushing forward to evangelize. And um, <laughs> anyway, so in, in the midst of all of this, my next door neighbor, who was also a Baptist, went to Tyler Street Baptist Church, was a geneticist um, who grew this giant orchard next to me. Uh, on the um, so if I'm facing town, it's on the right hand side. On the left hand side was a family who had a biological son and an adopted son. Their adopted son was Native American, and uh, their biological son was white um, and I think autistic. Um, and he was my age, and his adoptive brother was four years older than him, four years older than me. So. He was Shisham, I believe. Uh, he had been adopted in 1970. Um, he was a transracial adoptee, raised a, a native child, raised in a white family. Um, by the time I turned 15, he had long disappeared. He had run away from home at the time that he was 16. Um, they were told that he had found his tribe and went back to live with them. That's how... I understood the worst case scenario in a sense of being discovered as a child somehow was that if I showed up too much as native, then they, I would disappear or maybe I'd run away to him. I never fully understood it. I have vague memories of him 
you know, playing basketball. Um, and I was too small to be able to throw well. And he was playing with his friends and doing a really good job playing basketball. That's one of my clearest memories. I remember playing video games because uh, his mother had an Atari, but he was on the left. Um, he was on the left-hand side of the road, that family and him. So the right-hand side was the geneticist and his family. And in that orchard, he had many trees where he had grafted different fruit trees together. So. One tree would have apricots and plums and nectarines that sort of, he did um, watermelon that he was cultivating that only had a couple seeds in them, like four seeds and lunchbox watermelons. And he worked for one of the agricultural industries there. So my understanding of genetics was filtered through that. So I, I, as a child, there was no point in my mind where I didn't understand genetics, but I, but I understood it through this creationism sense. So it didn't necessarily allow for evolution or mutation, um, <laughs> which is a fascinating thing to, to be enmeshed in, I guess. Um, my education was odd in that retro, retro in retrospect. So <clears throat> I added on to that uh, a fascination with. Heinlein and reading that gave me a deeper understanding of genetics from sort of Heinlein's viewpoint. And all of this happened long before I was 14, 13. So all this fed into my understanding of sexuality. Um, this is how I self-educated, I guess, a lot of my sex education. You know, growing up within a religion is a slow and steady unveiling of a specific political worldview. I grew up within a worldview that traveled with me as I moved out of Idaho at the age of 14. I, I've returned to the town um, since I began writing this, and the town has grown to becoming a, a nerve center in the area. There's a huge shopping and dense traffic late in the day. But when I was young, the town was slower, dustier, sort of like literally tumbleweeds and empty lots. <clears throat> sagebrush mesquite i guess maybe i'm not sure like what the barren landscapes were like in between uh sort of the outlying areas but even the town itself uh, the empty lots had bike trails with handmade ramps um uh, even then the landscape was broken apart by canyons and fences like the canyons will never go away They're, the land around the town is a harsh, disrupted space. It's kind of fueled by an agricultural boom that was generated from ag uh, irrigation and kind of lack of oversight in genetically modified organisms and pesticide usage and experimental fertilizers and likely countless other environmentally unsound practices encouraged or at least allowed, let's say, by the state of Idaho. Uh, this played out at the personal level. I think my routine as a child was to take all the garbage outside to a rusted 50-gallon drum that had been pierced in multiple places to create a burn barrel where I douse the garbage with a little gasoline and burn it. I started this, you know, helping my dad burn gasoline. Oh, easily by the time I was six, seven. Um, doing it on my own by the time I was 10 and 11. 
Our neighbors down the road would burn tires every summer. Uh, pollution was not a primary concern in the Magic Valley, certainly not during the late 70s and early 80s when I was doing these chores. So my identity within that community never fully gelled. Uh, I can remember when I first curdled and when I became unruly. The reality is that articulating the injury, explaining the damage that adoption causes is nearly impossible for me and others adopted a pre-verbal stage in infancy. Um, pointing out specifics becomes like specific microaggressions of identity trauma. It becomes a process of tallying up countless moments of insensitivity and bias, all of which are microaggressions that weigh down upon an adoptee while appearing from an unadopted or kept perspective as unrelated, over-exaggerated incidents. So we're still an adoptee, maybe, probably will, become reactive, like triggering overwhelming emotional responses to seemingly insignificant stimuli. Going through daily routines only to be left anxious and overcome by emotion when an instance where adoption brought is brought up is exhausting, which is something I can attest to myself. Um, yeah, grieving and exploring the emotionality of being adopted creates rifts in the interpersonal relationships with one's very caregivers, and <laughs> as one becomes an adult, uh, throughout one's interpersonal relationships. So when I first thought about finding my biological family, it was a secret desire, like literally an occult practice, an occult research. I was developing conspiracy theories of myself long before I ever heard of Skull and Bones, or the Illuminati, or the New World Order, you know. My understanding of conspiracy theory was um, rooted within my family, trying to understand the secrets that I wasn't fully privy to, because I sensed they were there. Um, and the dreams, the weird dreams that I had when I was young. So the psychic aspects uh, of emotive body resonance with those with whom we are biologically related to, particularly if they're in your environment. The subconscious awareness of genetic similarities. What I mean by this is that I did meet my biological relatives, at least one of them. And I'll get to that. When I was 12 in Magic Valley, I met her face to face. She asked me questions. Uh, and then she left, and I spent a long time after that happened feeling like I had been touched by an outer layer of a secret society, a conspiracy, and that conspiracy was rooted in me and my identity. And I did find out later that I was right. Um, uh, I've heard of this term instead of paranoia. There's a term called paraphilia, I think, or paradelia. No. Paradelia is not what it looks like. Uh, I think it's paraphilia. Anyway, a notion that instead of everyone being out to get you, maybe everyone is out to um, support you secretly or out <laughs> with your own best interests in mind. Sort of inverting the paranoia. 
own principle. And in a way, it really did weirdly feel like that. I was being checked in on almost by someone to make sure I was okay in case they needed to snatch me out. And at the time, I felt like maybe I should have said something. Maybe I could have been snatched out. Like after that incident, I always went back to it. What could I have said? What could I have said that would have made that moment turn in a way that I needed it to? Or at least felt like I needed it to. Because it didn't go the way that I thought it should have. Anyway. <laughs> it certainly didn't pierce the veil for me at that point. So, <clears throat> grieving um, identity loss and exploring the emotionality of being adopted, like I said, creates those rifts in the interpersonal relationships with your caregivers and with those around you. Uh, it's a secret desire, like it's like masturbation or like hiding horror novels or it's, uh, you know, tr trying to look for who you truly are when you feel like you're stuck in a family that wants you to be grateful is a kind of perversion. It, it, it doesn't fit within the moral, the moral framework of the family. The adoptee's desire in film, right, is observed with clinical fascination or it's punished or played for laughs or is a vehicle for um, like a whimsical road trip. Like, uh, it's it, it, the message couldn't be clearer in modern media. Adoptees who search for their biological relatives are engaged in a high-risk activity if these movies or cartoons or television shows are meant to be anything, their cultural warnings to adoptees, to the, uh, the kept, their, you know, pablum, they're, they're, they're just, they're melodramatic. Uh, but to an adoptee, this is the representations. Uh, these are the stories that map their internal psychic landscape before they have a chance to self-individuate and then make an assessment of who they are and what parts of themselves and what parts are, you know, sort of tag along bits of story from the media that they, you've consumed or they've consumed over their life. So <clears throat> this is certainly how I take it. I'm being reflective as well as I'm going through this, but the ramifications can be larger than a panic attack an internal consequence for an internal moment. They can lead to life-altering consequences. So adoptees are not a protected social class. Many adoptees, particularly transnational and transracial adoptees, suffer because of social structures and biases towards those whose identities are at play. We as adoptees are objects, plot conveniences, and contrive to fill an emotive constraint. So films that showcase adoptees' experiences often sensationalize adoption or use adoptees as stand-ins for uniquely American demons, and television's portrayals of adoptees is also filled with exploitation. Uh, there is uh, there is a long-running, now-ended 
television horror series called Supernatural that was airing on the CW and is now available through streaming services that deals with adoptees and family drama in um, many <laughs> reoccurring ways. The themes keep reoccurring. And similarly, uh, Who's or FX's uh, Legion, which is Marvel's um, Legion, uh, written EP'd, I believe, too, by Noah Hawley, um, is, a, is another look at that. And I'll talk about all of that in depth in a bit. But for now, I'm trying to focus on um, the Magic Valley. So I understand that we're not a fixed culture. Representations are always in flux. And more and more adoptee writers are joining writers' rooms or centering adoptee voices in ways that uh, prioritize adoptee experience. Yet, historically and continuously, adoptees are almost always cast in one of these core representations. You have the good adoptee, which is a child that heals and salvages a life for an adoptive parent, as in the Royal Tenenbaums or the Good Son or the Juno. You have the late discovery adoptee, so one who discovers their status and disrupts the social order, sometimes becoming a broken or searching adoptee, as in the Ten Commandments, flirting with disaster, or joker. Then you have the broken adoptee, who's cursed and infectious, as in the rain, uh, the omen, the bad seed, <laughs> um, AI, artificial intelligence. Uh, and then I guess it's similarly, you have the searching adoptee, um, unsettled and driven, as in the Truman Show, flirting with disaster, Warlock 3, uh, which I'll get to, um, and also, again, AI, artificial intelligence, where it does both of those things, both broken and searching adoptee as one singular entity, non-entity. So all of these final three adoptees are in some way a bad adoptee, right? Adoptees who are conscious of their status as adoptees are inherently disruptive to the ideographic family. An adoptee who becomes enraged at the revelation of a long-held family secret has gone bad and has turned against their benevolent adoptive parents. The lies are there to protect a legacy. A purpose made manifest against the social order, actually. Like, without the lies, the adoption itself has no value. The adoptee becomes unruly. But we're talking about um, um, a biblical frame, which says, thou shalt not lie. The lie itself must be um, forgotten or um, done subconsciously or done legally in such a way that it doesn't appear to be connected to any one identity literally erasing identity, and it is that erasure of identity which is itself the lie. Uh, but then I wonder, am I going too deeply into poetry um, and not deeply enough into legalese? Without the lies, again, the adoption itself has no value. And that's the panic, if you listen to the previous episode, episode three of this podcast, I may never make. This is the panic played out in that first reel of the Ten Commandments, in the 1956 film. At every turn, Moses is provided a pathway back from his revelation, a way to maintain the social fabric, his inheritance, and the moral order of Egyptian life. And it was his rage in the film, his intransience 
not, not necessarily divinely inspired, just like rage, which led to his banishment, and he embraced the estrangement that his despair led him literally into enslavement meant nothing to him once he had gone bad. Um, finally, there's the film I mentioned earlier, AI, Artificial Intelligence, in 2001, which succeeds in pondering every station of the cross of an adoptee's internal experience, albeit out of order and jumbled against the screen of a spectacularly expansive retelling of Pinocchio. David, the central object of the film's focus, is both a broken adoptee literally discarded by his adoptive mother and a searching adoptee desperate to find a way to become a real boy, i.e. a real son. That David is neither antagonist nor protagonist, that he is always an object, even in the narrative path within which he is set, ultimately becoming nothing more than an observational position for alien scientists who manipulate him for their own research purposes, like really underscores the principal issue with non-adopted people scripting stories about adoptees. So to be honest, there is a lack of adoptee representation in writer, creator, and maybe even a producer, EP producer. Um, it's growing, it's probably getting better, but there is a glut of these formulas. Adoptee experience is not the subject it could be, as there are many current adoptee-related issues that have bubbled to the forefront socially, especially in the last few years. There are examples of international adoptees being deported under the draconian bureaucracy that is the United States of America's anti-immigration political climate, during the Trump years, it was bad. It happened during the Obama years as well. Let's see if it continues through the Biden years. There are instances of adoptees being used as practice children, of them being used as de facto slaves, or even used in secret research projects. Some of this is documented, like documented in the film Three Identical Strangers, the 2019 film, which aired on CNN. Uh, the broken adoptee, the child that poisons the family or devours them or turns the home into a psychic battlefield is the shadow cast by the good adoptee. Which, I mean, let's be honest, these are both fictions, right? I love Betty Jean Lifton. Um, but both the good adoptee and the bad adoptee, these are fictional constraints that I'm using to talk about real people and real lives. And through fiction, talking about how we understand these labels that we're labeling these children and these adults uh, in society around each other, around us, and myself and other adoptees. So there are a lot of movies that play these out sort of like neurotically in farcical ways, like Problem Child, the 1990 film, and The Omen, a 1976 film, which is a farce in its own sense. Um, or as like very personal bodily horror films, like haunting and disturbing inbreaking of the uncanny or the visceral, like in The Ring, the 2002 American film, or The Abandoned, which I think is a 2006 Russian film, maybe Russian-English production. So anyway, in the first grade, I realized I did not know my mother 
And I began studying all the photos in the house, uh, wondering if I would stumble across her image. We were being taught in class then that Satan was the father of lies. And I remember raising my hand and asking, if Satan is the father of lies, who's the mother? And the class laughed. And somehow the teacher was furious with me. And I didn't understand why. And I think I wanted to dig into this question further because I didn't really understand why the kids around me were laughing either. I felt pretty firmly that if you're going to talk in this mother-father dichotomy, that there needed to be a mother of lies as much as the father. Um, but somehow it also hinted at something that touched a nerve within the adults at that church, particularly the teacher I was given in first grade at that church, uh, when I would ask openly about motherhood in particular. Uh, and so I wonder psychically um, and retrospectively. I'm going to use the word psychic and empathic a lot. I'm sort of psychic and definitely empathic. I believe I'm more psychic now than I have ever been in my life. And I think some of that has to do with inculcating a sense of intuition because I'm finally... Uh, uh, doing the work I needed to do to understand who I am and who I've been told and, and the difference between those two things. But even at that young age, at that church, I think I sensed a topic that sort of lurked ever present within my home life. Uh, it was also somehow there present at my school. Uh, certainly at that point in my life, I'd also watched my sister be adopted. And I'm certain that given the way prayer circles work within small religious communities, this family secret is only so secret, right? If at all. Um, I was going in first grade to a church where a girl had been there only uh, what, seven, eight years earlier, pregnant and given birth to me. And I would do wonder how much I looked like other people in the community or if I looked like people that that teacher may have known. Um, as a first grader, navigating all of this is impossible, right? My only question remained a simple one about the maternity of lies. Who gave birth to the lies that Satan fathered? I'm still not sure that my first grade teacher knew I was adopted or that she knew who my actual mother was, but given the size of the church body, I would assume so. These congregations were only so large, denominations by and large kept themselves in that small town, and so I know she sent me to the principal's office where I was hit five times with a paddle. Um, the paddle had holes in it. This happened to me when I was seven years old. It was early in the year, likely in September of 1981, Twin Falls, Idaho, at uh, Twin Falls Christian Academy. So I, I clearly remember being disciplined and beaten by the principal in first grade. And in his worldview, I think he spanked me primarily for disrespect rather than specifically for inquiring about motherhood or my mother, if that's what the teacher thought I was doing. If my young protestations could have even been made out, I do know it's all sort of boiled together into this frustrating, confusing moment where I was sure I was asking one thing and something else was made of it. Uh, I do know that I didn't ask again in first grade about motherhood. Or, yeah, I think, or at least I suspect that I played to the laughter of the class around me. Maybe, maybe, perhaps I smiled too broadly in the moment for the teacher's likeling. Or I 
felt the weird rush of spreading humor too keenly as a first grader to notice the teacher descending on me furiously, but I do remember her tugging me down the hallways in a rush, um, holding me and jerking me by my, you know, upper right arm. The moment certainly left its imprint. I've never forgotten it. It was the first demerit I'd ever received. So demerits for these horrifying black marks on your permanent record at that school that like followed you literally through ninth grade. So that demerit was still in my record when I was there in ninth grade. Um, <laughs> uh, so obviously it was a horrifying black mark on my person that tarnished my reputation forever as I understood it at the time. So I remember bringing home the demerit slip, a notification for that infraction, and I was really ashamed of it, so I threw the notification away in a plastic trash can in my parents' bedroom. Um, I don't think this is the best place to hide a notice that they were meant to sign and have me return the following day, because they found it, and I was spanked again. Uh, my Jerry wide leather belt, uh, this time, for hiding the demerit slip for them, I think, and not for asking who my mother was, which is what I think the teacher had sent me to the principal to be spanked for, but again, I stopped asking about mothers and their roles in school, and although I do remember clearly being asked by my second grade teacher if I celebrated my birthday or my adoption day. Um, I came home that day convinced my real birthday was one day earlier than I'd been told and confronted my adoptive parents about my adoption day. And their response was the first time they told me I'd been brought over to their apartment the day of my birth. So that's when I got that first piece of information that I've been relaying in these previous podcasts. So later in sixth or seventh grade, I learned what it meant biblically that I was an adoptee. So. I cited, I don't think it was Deuteronomy 23.2, maybe, to argue that as a bastard, I shouldn't be allowed in the sanctuary, uh, the chapel, and that my adoptee status meant that God did not want me to attend chapel. So um, I personally counted as one of my greatest failings during my childhood that I did not succeed at being banished from weekly sermons at that Christian school through this argument. But, you know, as a child, I was obsessed with nuance and in particular exploiting nuance to my advantage because when you're a little kid, that's kind of all you've got is you try to find the nuance in things. So I say that and I realize that my son does the same thing who is nine years old. Um, certainly he reflects that seeking of the nuance for his rhetorical advantage that I saw it myself at his age. But, you know, lacking a familial history for myself, I found ways to make trivia, nuance, and obscurities as a replacement for heritage. I was a budding conspiracy theorist in my middle school years, drawing upon the religious and superstitious education and its implications under which I was raised. For my traditions, the rites and rituals of Northern Baptist evangelical theology was imposed. I was raised as a biblical literalist who believed in the coming tribulation, um, an argument basically coming down to whether you were a post or pre-rapturist 
you know, what, where you fell on that notion. Do all the Christians ascend and then the people are left to fight it out and become Christian before they prepare for the final battle after seven years? Or do the Christians get raptured halfway through the, you know, all of this. Um, these discussions about which world leader at the time may be the Antichrist were common during religion class in my private Christian school. So when we spoke up in class, we were assigned um, laps in the, these in the school. So during recess, we all had to run our laps before we could play on the playground. So, you know, discipline was a part of um, performance of play. The playground was a gravel pit with a series of monkey bars and swings and two large boulders that I remember clearly. The boulders were perfect for driving Hot Wheels cars up and down. So I'd smuggle in from home for the express purpose of pulling out of my pocket for those 12 minutes in the playground. Um, and every lap took up about a minute and a half of that recess time. And some days I would run laps until recess ended and continue running laps during the next break after lunch. And my life is in distinct blocks, boulders across which I roll memories and disconnected except by themes. Uh, I warned you, this is called unrelated thoughts. It's because of Disassociation is part of the process, I think, of being an adoptee. There's always a fog. There's a period that is hazy and filled with odd memories, odd moments that I recall attempting to get away from my adoptive mother. Um, so I recall being taught to pray to accept Jesus into my heart at the park, riding home in the car up Marie Street, from there to the carport at the apartment, um, I recall eating dog food in a backyard where I was only allowed to play on rare occasions. I had a fence that opened onto a three-foot drop, uh, sort of into concrete and stone. Um, this apartment living happened before my school years. So um, Then, as a child, I had anxieties related to bullying, to how I appeared when I was made to wear glasses to the way I was forced into activities that made my world smaller. I really resisted glasses because it didn't see people around me wearing them in my family. And so it was definite obvious difference between myself and those that had adopted me. But the pathological avenues of the religious need to save me, first as a baby and then again to save my soul, get me to accept Jesus into my heart as a displacement of my own ego, so to stop worshiping self and follow Jesus. Um, as a hard sell, it was a convincing pitch to a three or four-year-old, I'm sure. I prayed to his, my adoptive mother instructed in our car on the ride between the playground across the street from the YMCA to our apartment on Murray Street, um, word for word, as I was told to pray. And my adoptive mother was thrilled, and I'm certain she made a great deal of this conversion. My adoptive sister would have had a similar experience in becoming a Christian as well. Um, as I aged, I moved in a different direction as far as my theological perspectives. And as I started to th really think through the structures that were exerting influence in my life from before I was born, so my distrust of social institutions compounded by a visceral distaste for group settings and like an underlying unease when I am around groups of people singing together or, God forbid, praying out loud in a circle or otherwise worshiping in public, 
especially within conservative evangelical, overly liturgical or theatrical trappings, aesthetic, and sort of sets my teeth on it, right? I think it's a trauma, it's a trauma response. It's a, it might be an identity trauma. It might be moments of PTSD or it might be assault that I can't quite recall. But I experienced the same urge to flight, <laughs> to flight, um, to fight or flee that I experience whenever I am reminded of or speak with my adoptive father. So like it's the same neurotic anxiety, the need to go move quickly. Yeah, but as the years have passed, my oppositional approach to religion has certainly mellowed, shifting to accommodate my wife's Judaism and my son's religious education. But I can't, you know, abide Christians who value the words of the Apostle Paul as equally weighted to the statements attributed to Jesus Christ. I don't like the overt Calvinism that's inherent throughout most of conservative Christianism. Uh, I feel that the hypocrisy within the groups that I was associated and that I came to comprehend in retrospect led me to see these repressive social actions as indicative of a power imbalance that is perpetually in opposition to the questing or searching adoptee. I'm irritated at the lack of adherence to the instructions given on how to pray. Matthew 6, 5, is instead of those who pray privately and in secrecy, I grew up around those who used moments of public prayer to passive-aggressively undermine their own family and friends in publicly underhanded ways. So I found religious environments oppressive, vindictive, and omnipresent in my life in Twin Falls and throughout the whole Magic Valley area. By the time I'd left Idaho, I'd come to see the church in general and those two specific Baptist churches in particular as conspiring to erase and replace my identity for their own reputations and ego-driven needs over the realities of who I was as a person. I didn't really centralize this onto my own identity, however. I was still projecting this sense outward, like across the tiny peer group I had there in that town, as if I could somehow wake up my cohort in the Christian school to the hypocrisy I believe we were steeped in and overthrow these ideological chains somehow. Hmm. Um, when the men decided that upon birth I would be given away to my leaving my birth mother emotionally devastated, I was not even a distinct individual. In that moment of conspiracy, the reality of my presence was not the central pressing issue. The person who was present the person who existed was Nancy, a scared high schooler who desperately needed someone on her side, advocating that she not sever the bond she had with the child she wanted to keep. So, you know, the compassionate thing her church community should have done, the Christian thing, if you will, in quotes, to do would be to support her, and once I was born, to celebrate my birth as part of that world, that community. If I was met with love as part of a larger family, rather than suspicion from an unrelated clan, my relationship with religion itself would have been different. That I would find myself in that very same hostile church, attending at school as a student, to be beaten by the very men who were there years before when my mother was also being controlled, creates a very complicated series of emotions when I ponder these memories. This podcast episode has been a long way to get to the moment to explain this in a way that I hope you can understand. And 
as I go forward in this, the next episodes that I may or may not produce for public consumption, if you do happen to listen to these, I appreciate the fact that you've carried this length of engagement out with my memories. It does mean a lot, even if we never meet. My name is Jeffrey Wes Unruh. Uh, I was born in Twin Falls, Idaho, in Magic Valley, at the Magic Valley Regional Medical Center uh, on April 15th, 1974, a little bit before 1 p.m. <laughs> and uh, before the sun had set, I was at my adopted parents' house.